The sermon text is Selections from Daniel 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, The king, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and f- very furious, and commanded that all of the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and thus said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The king of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together, were broken in pieces, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all them, over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you, shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided. It, can, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. 
It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We are continuing our study of the book of Daniel this fall, and today we're coming to Daniel chapter 2, the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And uh, looking at this story has been kind of an interesting experience for me this week. Um, It has really changed the way I've thought about this story. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, if you've read these stories before, or if you've seen like the VeggieTales version of these stories before, you, you might remember Nebuchadnezzar as a bad guy, right? He is this over-the-top, irrational, angry ruler. But as I've looked at the story, as I've thought about it this week, I realized that Nebuchadnezzar is a lot more relatable than I recall. In, in fact, when you look at the story, what you see is that Nebuchadnezzar is a man who is, is feeling helpless, maybe for the first time in his life. And as a result, he's filled with anxiety. He's fearful. He's having a lot of trouble sleeping at night. And if, if that doesn't describe half the people in Boston, I don't know what does. I mean, this is uh, a really relatable guy. And today, as, I, as we look at this story, which is kind of long, um, as we look at it, as we try to get from the beginning all the way to the resolution, I want us just to, z- to zero in on Nebuchadnezzar's struggle. I want us to look at his fear, his anxiety, his helplessness, and see that we have a lot to learn from it, that you and I can, can gain a lot just from seeing how the characters in this story process those emotions. And so that's what I want us to do. This passage, it shows us this morning three things. It shows us first the uncertainty of our kingdom, secondly, the vision of God's kingdom, and finally, our response to the kingdom. So the uncertainty of our kingdom, a vision of God's kingdom, and our response to the kingdom. So let's just jump right in, because there is a ton that is happening in this passage. Um, I know our Bibles have like four-point font, but in my Bible, this takes up four pages of text. There's a lot here, and we're going to do our best to walk through it. Uh, Here's how it gets started. Okay, so this is not too long after the story began. It's not too long after Daniel and his friends were taken hostage in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon to live in the king's court and be one of the king's advisors. This was early on in their lives, and in the at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, starts to have nightmares. It seems like he's having repeated nightmares, and he demands that all of his experts come and interpret the dreams that he's having. But not only interpret them, right? He doesn't ask just that they would tell him what the dreams mean, but he wants them to tell him the dreams. And he offers them a reward or a punishment. All right, verse 5, it tells us... This word is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, 
you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Now, as a parent, I think offering both the carrot and the stick at the same time is not a good idea. It never works out well. It, it, it proves that you don't really know what you're, what you're trying to get. But that's what he does. He says, either you, you, you don't tell me uh, and I kill you, or you tell me and you get all the rewards in the kingdom. Now, why would he do that? Why would he offer these two choices? Well, we can't be certain. But I think it's fair to say Nebuchadnezzar is not an idiot. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is perhaps the most powerful man who has lived up to this point in history. He knows how to get things done. (laughs) He sits atop a vast and amazing kingdom. He built an empire whose, uh, you read in history, the, the, the excellence is unparalleled. So he probably isn't being an idiot here. He probably was just, he, he felt like his advisors were suspect. He thought maybe, like a lot of emperors, that they're just going to tell him the things that he wants to hear. And so these enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, we find out they couldn't do it. He offers them this opportunity, and they aren't able to come up with what this dream was or its interpretation, and the king flips out. He removes the carrot offers. He he removes the the offering of blessing, and he says, all right, just kill them all. Let's get rid of all the wise men in Babylon. And so maybe you hear that story, and you think, man, that guy's crazy. Or if you're like me, maybe you hear that story, and you think, I worked for a guy like that once. (laughs) Right? Don't we, haven't we, a lot of us had those bosses where, you know, if they had the power to kill their employees, you, you, it would have been tough, right? Lives would have been at risk. Now, when you consider some of the historical stuff, too, it starts to make a little more sense. When you bring in his thinking, maybe you start to, to understand why he might respond in such an extreme way. See, back in this Babylonian and pagan religion, there was an understanding that dreams were a way the gods would communicate. Dreams weren't just random. It wasn't just kind of the, the stresses of your day kind of mixed together in a strange story. But it was a message from the gods, especially a dream like this, that would come over and over again, that would cause you a restless night. And so, so for, for Nebuchadnezzar, this was a life and death issue for him. Maybe the gods were trying to tell him that, that someone was coming to assassinate him. Who knows? And so, we find when these guys respond to him in verse 11, he reaches his breaking point. They say, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. That's the moment. That's the trigger. That's the thing that makes Nebuchadnezzar lash out. That's what puts him in a frenzy. That's what terrifies him. And I think that is the place where we can start to relate to him. Because what's happening in Nebuchadnezzar's heart right here is something we all experience. It's something every one of us deals with. In this moment, Nebuchadnezzar is coming face to face with the hard reality that he is just a human being. Sure, he's successful. He's extremely successful. He's powerful. This is how Daniel himself describes him. He says, 
You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. Right? He's saying that, that he's the greatest king who's ever lived. That all of creation is subject to him. And yet, despite all the power that Nebuchadnezzar has, he can't even control what's happening in his own mind. For all his authority, for all this power and confidence that he exudes, he is still helpless to the forces around him. No matter how great his kingdom has become, he's got to face that hard reality that his grip on this world can never be strong enough. Now, we're not emperors, but we all share that tendency, right? We all share this tendency to build up kingdoms for ourselves, that we build up these lives that are based on the illusion of our control. And eventually, something comes to break that down. Eventually, something comes that wakes us up out of that dream. Now, for some people that I've talked to, the moment that happens is from the news. It's from seeing maybe some natural disaster that is taking place somewhere and realizing how helpless they really are. For some of us, it's just realizing our, our powerlessness in the face of injustice and evil in this world. Maybe some of you are there this week, right, as we're watching yet another story of, of African-American men who are, are killed and watching these cities being torn apart by racial tension. Maybe those are the things that, that drive you to see how powerless you really are. But more often, it happens gradually. More often it happens in, a, in those personal and small ways, not these big picture ways. It's through those tiny little reminders of your own mortality, of the inevitability of life. James Woods is a Harvard professor, and he wrote an essay about this. And here's how he put it. He said, as one gets older and parents and peers begin to die, and the obituaries in the newspapers are no longer missives from a faraway place, but local letters. And one's own projects seem ever more pointless and ephemeral, temporary. He says, in those times, in those moments, these moments of terror and incomprehension, where we're forced to face the reality of our death, seem more frequent and more piercing. And here's what he says. He says, I find that they are just as likely to arise in the middle of the day as in the night. All of us eventually come to this place where we see Nebuchadnezzar. We come to this place where we are shaken by the truth. We carry ourselves as if we have all the power, as if we're the ones in control, as if we have the final say in the way our life is going to go, but we don't. And the longer we live, the more difficult it is for us to live in that delusion. Slowly, you have to realize that the kingdom that you're building, 
whether it's about your job, whether it's your education, whether it's your, your family, whether it's your pursuit of, of happiness, or even something as small as just being physically fit. Our kingdom is a kingdom we can't control. It's one that will not last. And no matter how hard you try to forget it, you cannot escape the reality of Psalm 90. Do you remember that psalm? The psalmist says the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So how do we deal with that? How do we face that reality? Well, some of us, we respond like Nebuchadnezzar does here, right? We lash out. We try to grab for control. You know, maybe we start exercising more. Maybe we start planning for retirement. We, we try to make people around us miserable with us. But for most people, the answer is a little more simple. For most of us, we just try to ignore it. We try to push that, that truth back to the corner of our mind and just make the best of the time we've got. Try not to think about it too much. I think it's really interesting that in that little quote I read, Woods calls these moments moments of terror. Because they're really just moments of truth, right? This is reality. This has always been reality. And yet it is terrible. Why is that? Why is something that's always been true still a terror to us? Why is it that if this is all there has ever been, it's a thought that still keeps us awake at night? Well, as we see as we keep going through this text, it's because our hearts weren't made for this kingdom. Our hearts are restless because they were made for a better kingdom. And that's what this dream is about. So let's, let's keep going with this. Let's look at this vision of God's kingdom. Okay, so the story, it keeps going. Daniel, he finds out about the king's death threat. He finds out about this order that's been put out there. And Daniel says, tell him I can do it. Without any knowledge, without any guarantee that this is what's going to happen, he says, all right, just set up the appointment. I'm going to tell him what the dream is. And then he goes and he gets his friends, and he asks them to pray. And the story tells us that that evening, this vision is revealed. And Daniel praises God. And as we look at this account, it's kind of amazing to see the way Daniel approaches the king here. After having this vision revealed to him the night, after understanding what this vision is about, Daniel seems like the exact opposite of Nebuchadnezzar in a lot of ways. His response to this, it's kind of breathtaking. Even the way he, he carries himself personally, right? Rather than, than coming and asserting his greatness and showing that he has found out this information that nobody else could find out, when the king asks him if he's able to interpret, Daniel says this, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that he has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
And he has made known to Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So then Daniel describes this dream. And the dream is of this image that we're told is both bright and terrifying. It's the image of a, 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 it's an image with a golden head, with a chest that is made of silver, with a midsection that's made of bronze and legs that are a mixture of iron and clay. And in this vision, a stone strikes the image at its feet, and the whole thing collapses. It collapses into dust, and it blows away. And then the stone, it says, grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And so Daniel starts to unfold the meaning. And the meaning is is not all that complicated. He says, after your kingdom will come a succession of many other kingdoms. Now, whenever we get to passages like this in the Bible, when we get to prophecies, when we get to visions and dreams, we got to be careful. Because we can get into some, some strange territory with how we interpret these things. Especially when you realize Daniel doesn't go out of his way to tell us the names of these kingdoms. He doesn't tell us the dates of these kingdoms. And because of that, when you find passages like this with kind of abstract images, without any specifics, you find people who like to come up with some weird theories, right? I mean, I, can, I haven't seen it, but I'm pretty sure if you go home and Google this prophecy, you'll find people online right now that will tell you that that iron and clay, that is absolutely Trump and Clinton, right? Or, or Apple and Google or Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, whatever. People will find some things to make out of this. And of course, there's better guesses we can make, right? We can look at history and we can get an idea of who and what these things were. But I think when we get bogged down in those details, we need to be careful because we can miss the point. Especially a point that is clear, a point that Daniel wants us to hear. And the point is simple. The kingdoms of this world rise and fall. The kingdoms of this world rise and fall. History is the story of powerful people who build vast and impressive and sometimes terrifying empires that are eventually blown away, that crumble, that leave no trace. And that was certainly the case with Babylon, right? And the Medo-Persians that followed, and with Greece, and with Rome, and with dozens of others who have come after them. And so, maybe one simple, just personal application for us this morning should be, if you are hoping and trusting in a politician to save you, if you think that, that Trump or Clinton or please just anyone other than Trump or Clinton might be the answer to your hopes that might fix this world in, in some permanent way, if you think a policy or a tax plan or some election is going to turn the tide, History is not on your side. And beyond politics, if if you, if you personally have set your hopes on carving out your own kingdom, if you think your empire of success 
or your personal talent or your relationships or the degrees that you've gotten, if you think those things are going to last, Nebuchadnezzar's dream tells you otherwise. Even the finest things in this life will one day be dust. Our empires will fade. We will be gone. And someone else will take our place. Up to this point, you know, this prophecy could be summarized by uh, a Sufjan Stevens song. I don't, I don't know if I say that right. I'm looking at a look from the crowd that's like, you didn't say that right. <laughs> I don't know. He's an indie pop guy. And uh, he wrote this song called The Fourth of July. And the end of that song is just this chanting, we're all going to die, <laughs> in a very pleasant kind of sing-song way. And I heard that song, and I just, the first thing I imagined was what it would be like to be at you know, some auditorium, some concert, with a, the whole group of people watching and chanting together, we're all going to die. It's a pretty depressing picture, right? We're all going to die. That would be the point of this dream if it weren't for the last part. But here's how it ends. Daniel says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The point of this vision is not simply the inevitable march of time and death, but is actually the incredible hope of God's everlasting kingdom. Maybe the most important part of this that we, we can overlook is, is where Daniel says right at the beginning, in the days of those kings. Did you hear that? He says, in the days of those kings. We see that the thing that is going to break this image apart is a stone. That in the midst of the turmoil, that in the midst of the churn of history, as, as empires are built, as humans war and fight with one another, as we push and strive to make our mark in society and in history, in the middle of that, a small stone is on the scene. It doesn't say, and long after those kings are gone, It doesn't say years later. No, it says in the days of those kings. In the days of those kingdoms, this stone comes. And we know, he tells us, this stone is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom that Jesus himself describes. He says it's like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of the seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. That stone 
becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. That means that this story, this dream, is not meant primarily to terrify us, but to call us to our senses. The point this dream is trying to make is that God's kingdom is here. And it's growing. It's a kingdom that that cannot and will not fail. It's the kingdom that the author of Hebrews calls the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it's only when we gain a vision of that kingdom, it's only when we understand what that story is that, that we find what our hearts are longing for. That we find the only kingdom that can satisfy our desire for a claim that lasts. For a home that won't fade away and turn to dust. So what do we do? Well, we have to respond. Once we know that this is the story of history, we have a decision to make. We have a response to give. And Nebuchadnezzar, his response is a pretty interesting case study. Out of mercy for our our knees, we didn't read this whole chapter. (laughs) We read just sections. We didn't get to read out loud the last little bit. Um, But if you read those last few verses, what you find is when Nebuchadnezzar hears this explained, he's grateful. He's excited to know what it means. He's impressed by what Daniel's done. He even comes through with his promises, right? He gives him gifts. He puts him, Daniel and his friends, in great positions of authority. But Nebuchadnezzar, as a man, is unchanged. Who knows what he was thinking, but maybe... You know, once he found out that this prophecy meant he could go on ruling, once it, he found out it meant he wasn't going to immediately die, that he stopped worrying about the rest of the prophecy. Like, like those days when we were kids and we sat in front of the TVs waiting for school closings, right? And the list ticks by. And once you see your school's name, it's turn off the TV and go, right? We see that Nebuchadnezzar, once he knows he's not at risk, he's content to just go on with the status quo. He's he's happy to go on in a world living where he's at the top, where things are going his way. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's the case with us in this room right now. Maybe, sure, yeah, we realize nothing lasts. But right now, things are working out all right. Or maybe they're not working out all right quite yet, but i got to keep working because someday they will be. Maybe you're in that place where you are content to keep pushing, keep pursuing your own kingdom and your own dream and not really be concerned about what might come next. But before we leave this passage this morning, there's another place we need to, to go. Before we leave this vision, we need to remember that this is not the only place where we see this picture of a stone. In fact, there's another place in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus talks about this. Where he talks about himself 
as the stone. And here's what he says in Matthew 21. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The good news that Daniel tells us when he's explaining what this dream means is that God's kingdom is coming. His rule and his reign are going to overwhelm the kingdoms of the world. They are going to wipe out their evil and their injustice and their self-concern. The good news we read is that Christ has come. And his kingdom is right now growing and spreading throughout this earth. And one day it's going to be here in completion. One day his, his kingdom will envelop the whole earth and everything will be the way that it should be. The deepest longings of your hearts will be met in him. But in this kingdom, there can only be one on the throne. And in this vision, God is saying to you and to me the very same thing he's trying to tell Nebuchadnezzar. There is only one Lord of Lords. There is only one King of Kings. And it's not you. And that means all of us, we have a choice to make. We have the choice to make whether we want to live our life in submission to Him or live our lives in rebellion against Him. But either way, we know how the story ends. We can build our lives upon His kingdom or we can be crushed by it. Now, there's a beautiful thing here as we read this historical account, as we read the, the account of how this went down. Because you realize that you don't only see Nebuchadnezzar's response to the vision. We hear that at the end. But in the middle of the story, we see Daniel's response to it. In the middle of the story, we see how Daniel deals with this information when he hears it. And Daniel, if you recall, his life is in a much worse place than Nebuchadnezzar's. His life is not just at, you know, maybe it's at risk because what might this vision mean, but his life is at in imminent danger. The king has already said everyone's going to die. Instead of being in some position of power, he is at the mercy of a temperamental man in a country where he has no say in anything. And yet, even before he knows if he's going to survive this moment, we see a man who has no fear, who has no anxiety. Even at the threat of his own death, he is, he is characterized by this great peace. And when he sees this vision of God's kingdom coming and crushing everything that he knows to be true, he praises him for it. Even though it's going to mean, for Daniel, a life of upheaval. 
where he lives through a bunch of different kingdoms, where he has many more obstacles to face in his life. And I just want us to see here that that response, that response is the blessing that comes through a life of faith. You see, folks, the gospel assures us that God's work of judgment has been completed for us on the cross. The gospel tells us that Jesus was treated as a traitor in our place so that we could be welcomed into the kingdom, that Christ himself was crushed to pieces so that you and I could be made whole in him. And when you come to that hope, when you, when you know Christ as your Savior, then that means you know that God's steadfast love for you will never fail. That you belong not to some temporary kingdom that's passing away, but to the king whose name will be blessed forever and ever. It means that you can find rest on those sleepless nights. Instead of telling yourself what the world tells you, just forget about it. Put that out of your mind. Forget about reality. Don't think about that. The Christian gets to tell himself, think about reality. <laughs> Remind yourself of what's true. Lean into that, not away from it. And folks, if that's your hope, I hope as well, that we can have the confidence to share that good news, to tell that message to others in the world around us as we watch them struggle through the same things we all face. This vision tells us that our hope doesn't rest in kings and rulers. It doesn't rest in policies and plans, but in a stone that was not carved by men and in a king whose kingdom will never be shaken. Let's pray. Lord, we are uh, wired to seek significance in our lives. We are wired to look for meaning in the world around us and to try to find purpose. But because of our sin, we miss it. Because of our sin, we try to attach ourselves to all of these things that fade away. And Lord, I thank you this morning that you call us back home. You call us to our senses. You remind us of the hope of your eternal and everlasting kingdom. So Lord, I pray for people in this room who may be living apart from you. God, I ask that you would convict them of their sin. And call them home. And Lord, I pray for us uh, who may be going through those really hard days, those sleepless nights. Lord, would you call us back to the truth of your word? Would you assure us of the good news of the gospel? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.